0: John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18 is going to be our text this morning. Finish out the prologue. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. who is at the father's side he has made him known brothers and sisters this is the word of the lord given to us for our good let's pray together and ask god to bless the reading and the preaching of his word heavenly father we ask for the holy spirit's help we are not capable by nature to understand the things of god as revealed in your word we need illumination from the holy spirit and so we pray now that you would please open our hearts and minds to understand the Scriptures and to believe the things that have been revealed concerning your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. We pray, Father, for the humility to be convicted. We pray, Father, for the ability to be encouraged. We pray for faith to be strengthened. Father, we pray, oh how we pray, that your name would be glorified in us and through us today as we listen to your word. Please keep me from error, God. Please help me to say things that are true and in accordance with the scriptures. And please give your church discernment. These are your people, God. Please give them discernment to hold fast to the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Confident that you hear us. Amen. Today, we are reflecting on the incarnation of the Son of God that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What can you say to introduce something so wonderful? (laughs) I don't have words to describe what is indescribable. I don't have wisdom enough to explain what is inconceivable. C.S. Lewis said that the Incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity, and he was absolutely right. Without the Incarnation, there would be no Good Friday, No resurrection Sunday, no outpouring of the Holy Spirit, no gospel. This is the indispensable truth of the Christian faith and the starting point of all of our hope that God became man in Christ Jesus and he did so for our salvation. So today we have this incredible privilege to pause in the midst of a busy time of year and reflect on the miracle that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If it were not for scripture, no human imagination would ever conceive of something so wonderful as this truth. J.I. Packer once said, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in all of fiction is as fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. It's only on biblical authority that anyone would ever believe this truth, let alone conceive it. And on the authority of God's word. You must believe it friends. We must believe this truth. The incarnation is quite simply too magnificent for our conception. But it's also too important to be ignored. This is what we must believe. And our passage today in John chapter 1. Is the central biblical text. On this central miracle of the Christian faith. Beginning in verse 14. John unfolds for us. How the eternal word. Who was with God. And who is God. Became flesh. And dwelt among us. All of the theology of the prologue now reaches its climax and its application. Why has John labored to show us the deity and authority of the word so that he could get to verse 14 and we would respond with worship? Why has John shown us the darkness of this world and the grace of our adoption as sons so that we would see how our salvation begins with the son's willingness to lay aside his glory for you and for me, for his people? All of that comes together in this short paragraph. And the aim is to show us without doubt that Jesus Christ is the exclusive way, the supreme truth, and the unfailing life for all who would know God. This, friends, is ground zero for Christian worship, Christian living, and Christian mission. This is why we praise God love the church and proclaim the gospel because God's glory has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. It's the most staggering thing anyone can ever say. In light of that, let me give you my caveat up front. We're not going to get to the bottom of these verses today. If you think at some point, well, there was more he could have said on that verse. Yes, there is. And I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you. And talk about it. I'll also let you know that this is the third time in ten years that I have preached through these verses. And each time I study them, my wonder at the gospel grows. I am not sure that there is another passage in the Bible that so thrills my heart. And captures my imagination. So whatever I say today, it's only the beginning. My aim is to whet your appetite, so to speak so that you will leave today wanting to know more of Jesus Christ. My hope is that you will walk out of church today already thinking of what you might do so that you can grow deeper in knowing and serving Christ, both here in our church and out there in the darkness of the world. That's my hope, that you will leave today wanting to know Christ more. In terms of an outline, we're going to focus on three declarations concerning Jesus Christ from verses 14 to 18. It's clear that the Apostle John is giving us his theology of the Son in these verses. And it's also clear that John seeks to identify the Son of God with Jesus of Nazareth. So our strategy this morning is going to be to condense John's theology as much as we can into three declarations Concerning Christ, the Son of God. Let's begin in verse 14 with declaration number 1. Christ is the glory of God with us. Christ is the glory of God with us. For the first time since verse 1, John returns to the identity of the Word. You may remember from a few weeks ago how the Word was the eternal, self-existent, God, the one through whom all things were made. The word was with God, and the word was God, John said. Now he takes the truth of verse 1, and he connects it with all things, humanity. He connects it with humanity. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, this is the heart of the incarnation. The one who is fully God became truly human in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we talk about the Incarnation. The one who is fully God became truly human in Jesus Christ. The Creator became like His creation. This is the wonder of Bethlehem's stable. The angels and the shepherds were in awe of baby Jesus, not because He was cute and cuddly. They were in awe of Jesus because He's God. In the flesh. And John emphasizes this with his language. Look at verse 14. Notice how he says, The Word became flesh. That is, the Word did not merely appear human, He became a man. Meaning, He took on flesh and blood. He became like us in every way, with the exception of sin. He became flesh. But at the same time, notice that it is the Word who did this. That is, the Word did not cease to be who He was. He continued to be the eternal, preexistent Word of God. Without subtracting from His deity, the Word took upon Himself our humanity. Fully God, truly human. That's the result, the incarnation, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. But the wonder of the incarnation goes deeper. Notice the next phrase in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to understand this phrase, we have to think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament of all things. We're going to think about a lot of Old Testament stuff today. So to understand what it means that the word dwelt among us, we have to think about the tabernacle. Remember, following Israel's exodus from Egypt, God instructed his people to build a tabernacle, a huge tent that would sit in the middle of the people. And we tend to think about the tabernacle and get caught up in all of the details, all of the utensils and the furnishings and the curtains and the gold stuff. But the key part of the tabernacle was not any of those things. It was the presence of God. It was the presence of God. Exodus chapter 40 verse 34 says it very clearly. Then the cloud of glory covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Amazingly, God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt and then and then he dwelt among them. With his presence sheltered there, In the tabernacle, God's presence in the midst of his people. And that situation continued from the tabernacle on into Solomon's temple where the glory of God was said to dwell in the holy of holies. And yet, if you read the Old Testament closely, then you will learn that that's not the end of the story. Later in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, God's presence shows up again... But this time in a tragic way. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the prophet sees the glory of God leaving the temple. In other words, God's presence is no longer in the midst of His people. Their sin has separated them from God and so He no longer dwells among them. So, when John says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He's proclaiming incredibly good news. Humanity's exile is coming to an end. For God, God has come once again to dwell in the midst of his people. But here's the key, brothers and sisters. This time, God's presence is not mediated through a tabernacle. This time, God's presence is not cordoned off behind the curtains of the temple. This time, God comes to dwell with man as man. With unthinkable humility, the Son of God descends from glory and he takes on humanity in order to dwell with his people and reconcile sinners to God. Don't miss the initiative, friends. Please don't miss the initiative. We don't make the first move towards God. That's not the good news. The good news is that God comes to us. God descends to us in the incarnation of His Son. And that means Jesus Christ, in His flesh and blood, fulfills the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple. People will sometimes ask me, I don't like to read the Old Testament because it's confusing to me and I don't understand it. And I understand that on some level. You know what the key to the Old Testament is? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus Christ fulfills the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple. Again, look at John's language. Look at the next phrase in verse 14. And we have seen His glory. Could any Israelite enter the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies in the temple? No. Only the priests could go in. And only the high priest could enter the inner sanctuary. And even then, the high priest did not see the presence of God in a tangible way. There was still this disconnect between the invisible God who is spirit and humanity who dwell in flesh and blood. But now, John is telling us, that disconnect is done away with. Better yet, it's fulfilled. For Jesus Christ is the Son of God in flesh. And John is very clear at this point. He doesn't want you to miss this. He and the other eyewitnesses have seen. Do you see the verb? They've seen his glory. John's point is that the presence of God was there in flesh and blood. It wasn't a cloud of glory. It was a man, Jesus, who's fully God. The apostles saw Jesus. They walked and ate and laughed and cried with him. John himself leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus was no myth, in other words. The Gospel is not some esoteric, mystical religion that requires you to have an otherworldly experience to enter the presence of God. No, in the Gospel, God comes to His people in flesh and blood. Even the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Understand, this is unique in all of the religions in the world. In every world religion, the divine is always distant and inaccessible. In every other religion, it's humanity that has to make the first move. It's humanity that has to transcend earth in hopes of reaching the divine. But not so with Christianity, not so with the gospel. Our good news is that God descends to us. God descends. Moved towards us by taking on flesh in Jesus Christ. And that is why John can make the astounding statement at the end of the verse. Notice how verse 14 ends. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. We're going to come back to grace and truth in a few minutes. But for now, I, I just want you to see the glory. By taking on human flesh, Jesus Christ brings the glory of God near to us. Again, think about the Old Testament where the glory of God was always inaccessible. Think, for example, of Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Do you, do you remember that part towards the end of Exodus? Exodus. Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory face to face or else you would die. So I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And once I've passed by, you can see. You, God says, you can see my backside, the King James says. You can see the backside glory of God. The point was that even Moses... The man of God, that's how Moses is called. Moses, the man of God, could not see God's glory. Not even Moses saw the glory of God. But what happens here in verse 14? What has John seen? He has seen what Moses could not see. John has seen the glory of the only Son from the Father. The emphasis is on Jesus' unique position as the Son of God. He is the only Son of God and therefore He is the only one who can reveal the Father's glory. He is the only one who bears the Father's likeness, so to speak. And that's John's declaration to us in verse 14. To see Christ is to see the glory of God. To see Christ by faith is to see what Old Testament saints longed to see. It's to see the glory of God, the brightness of His presence, the magnitude of His character in Jesus Christ. We're going to return to this theme in our final point. But for now, I want to pause here. I want to pause here and stress to you that, that this is what we were made for. This is what you were made for. To know The glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's the reason why you exist. Every person is made in God's image. And that means every person is hardwired to see and treasure glory. That desire has been corrupted by sin, but it has not been eradicated by sin. Every person is hardwired to see glory. We were made for glory. We were not made to live these small lives where all of our desires are turned in on themselves. And all we crave is more stuff and more distraction and more ease and more things that push us in on ourselves. We weren't made for that. We were made to know and treasure glory. And here in verse 14, we're reminded that this desire for glory finds its fulfillment only in Jesus Christ. Friends, you were made to know Christ. You were made to treasure Jesus Christ. And then to make Him known to a world that is in love with 10,000 things that only lead to death. You're made to know Christ. For only in Christ is the glory of God seen and received and understood. We were made for glory And God's glory is in His Son. And that means if your Christian walk seems anemic to you, if your faith seems weak, and perhaps even pointless, then what you need is to go deeper in knowing Jesus Christ by His Spirit through His Word. Leave aside all the glittering things of this world, and run hard after Jesus Christ. Leave aside the pursuit of meaning through unending busyness and seek to know Christ. Leave aside all the trumped up crusades that have hijacked contemporary Christianity and join the Apostle Paul in determining to know only one thing, Christ and Him crucified. You were made for glory, friends. This is my whole pastoral theology in one paragraph. You were made to know glory, and that glory is in the Son of God. So know Him by faith through His Word. Christ is the glory of God with us, and that means you were made to know Him. That's declaration number one. The second declaration concerning Christ comes in verses 16 And 17, Christ is the grace of God for us. He's the glory of God with us and Christ is the grace of God for us. You'll notice in verse 15 that the Apostle John adds another word on John the Baptist. You see there verse 15, he again affirms that John the Baptist was a witness to Christ and that the Baptist's testimony exalted Christ those are not insignificant points. And we're going to come back to John the Baptist in a couple of weeks when we get to verse 19. But for now, we want to focus on verses 16 and 17. Christ is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, verse 14. And now John expands on God's provision. Look again, verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus Christ is fully God. He is of the exact same nature as God the Father. That's what John means when he speaks of Christ's fullness. It's it's similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, this is the bedrock truth regarding Jesus Christ. He is both fully God and truly human. He is the Word made flesh. But amazingly, Christ's fullness overflows to his people. John says that believers have received from Christ grace upon grace. Do you see that there, verse 16? Grace upon grace. Now, what does that phrase mean? Grace upon grace. One common view is that it means in Christ, believers receive one blessing after another. Some English translations even render it that way. That in Christ we receive one blessing after another. another Like waves of the ocean, Christ gives believers grace upon grace. So that when one moment of grace rolls out, another moment of grace rolls in. Think of that wonderful hymn, O oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Do you know that hymn? There's one line that says, Christ's love is like a mighty ocean in its fullness, rolling over me. Wave after wave of grace. That's one view of this phrase, grace upon grace. It's that in Christ, God continually supplies grace without any break in blessing his people. That's one common view. Now, I want to be clear on this point. So if you're only going to listen to one part of the sermon, this is the part you should listen to. I want to be clear on this so that no one misunderstands me. That view is doctrinally correct. That's true doctrine. But I don't believe that's what John is saying in verse 16. It's true that in Christ, grace follows grace, like one wave after another. Praise God. That's gloriously true. But that's not what John means in verse 16 when he talks about grace upon grace. He means something else. How do we know that? Well, for two reasons. The first is that preposition, upon. You see it, grace upon grace. That's not the usual preposition for upon. Rather, John is using a less common preposition that means instead of, or in the place of. Luke chapter 11 is a good example where Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a a fish instead of a fish, Gives him a serpent. Do you hear it? Instead of. Or 1 Peter chapter 3. Don't repay anyone for evil. Don't return evil in the place of evil. Don't do this instead of that. That's the preposition that John uses here. In verse 16. And so that means the phrase grace upon grace. Is almost like grace in the place of grace. For that reason John's. Word choice makes us think there's more here than just an unending wave of grace. That's the first reason. The second reason is verse 17. Verse 17 explains verse 16. Verse 17 is the explanation, the elaboration of verse 16. So look again at the text and just follow along, starting in verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace for or because the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 17 explains or elaborates verse 16. Of course, that just backs the question up one level, doesn't it? If grace upon grace is explained by verse 17, then what does verse 17 mean? Why does John start talking about Moses and the law? I thought we were talking about grace, John. Why are you talking about Moses? Why are you talking about the law? And how does that relate to grace upon grace? Well, John is making a point here about how you should read your Bible. John is making a point about redemptive history, of how you put the Old Testament and the New Testament together in Jesus Christ. He's putting Jesus Christ, whose name is used for the first time in verse 17. John is putting Jesus in his proper place Which is at the climax of redemptive history. Let me explain a little bit further what I mean. In the Old Testament, God's revelation of himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law was an act of grace. Through the giving of the law, God revealed his character. God showed his people what he was like, that he is holy, that he is righteous. That he is merciful. And in giving the law, God revealed what was required to enter his presence. Be holy as I am holy, God said. All of that was an act of grace. Anytime God reveals himself to his people, it's an act of grace. For God is not obligated to reveal himself to anyone at any time. Any revelation of God is an act of grace. And yet... The revelation of God in the law could not deal with his people's sin, at least not in a final or ultimate sense. There were sacrifices, of course, but those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over. Every time you repeated the sacrifice, it was reminding you that the previous sacrifice wasn't enough to deal with your sin forever. That's why you had to keep doing them. So the law revealed God The law revealed what God required, but the law could not finally and forever bridge the divide between a holy God and a sinful people. In other words, there was grace, there was grace, but it wasn't final grace. It wasn't definitive grace. But now, John says, grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. You see it there, verse 17? The law came through Moses, then there's no conjunction the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, in verse 17, refer to God's covenant faithfulness. What the Old Testament called God's steadfast love and faithfulness. In fact, this is what God said to Moses On Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Remember, Moses said, I want to see your glory. God said, no, you can't see my glory. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and I'll proclaim my name to you, God said. And so he passes by Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. And friends, that's the connection with verse 17. Grace and truth are God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament anticipated, Christ fulfills. What Moses saw in part, believers in Christ see in full. And according to John, this is the climax of redemptive history. This is the pinnacle of God's work. In the world, when the Word became flesh, God's covenant faithfulness was ultimately displayed. When the Word became flesh, God's gracious gift of Himself took on its final expression. When the Word became flesh, God's revelation was complete. In Christ, God has drawn near to His people. And He has done so in a way that will once and for all deal with the sin of His people. That is the grace upon grace of verse 16. God revealed himself through Moses. That was grace. But now God has revealed himself finally and fully in Jesus Christ. That's the grace in place of grace. Or to say it a different way, that's the grace that saves once and for all. Now, before we move on to verse 18, which is where we're going to end, we ought to note that John identifies Jesus by name for the first time in verse 17. you catch that? That is significant, considering what we've just talked about. For the first time, we hear the name Jesus Christ, and it comes in the context of God's final saving grace. Why is that significant? Because it teaches us that God's grace is not merely a thing that He gives to people. God's grace is not a commodity that He has stored in a heavenly warehouse that He doles out to people in increments like something you could buy at the store. That's not God's grace. God's grace is a person, Jesus Christ. God's grace is the gift of Himself in His Son, the Word made flesh. This is why the New Testament consistently points to the cross. The cross of all things. The cross as the display of God's grace. How can something as horrible and shameful as the cross be a picture of grace? Because it's at the cross that we see God's action to overcome sin, secure forgiveness, and satisfy His wrath. It's at the cross that we see redemptive history reach its end. All that God has been doing is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for the redemption of his people. That is grace. Grace is not simply God's good will towards us. Grace is God's gift of himself for us. The word became flesh precisely so he would have blood to shed on the cross. That's the grace of God. For sinners like you and me. That takes us right into the final declaration concerning Christ from verse 18. Christ is the revelation of God to us. The glory of God with us, the grace of God for us. Christ is the revelation of God to us. John continues to think about Moses on Mount Sinai from Exodus 34. I'll say it again if you want to understand the Old Testament. Read a lot of, if you want to understand the New Testament, read a lot of the Old Testament. John is still thinking about Moses on Sinai. Listen to what he says, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Moses on Sinai was the high point of Old Testament revelation, it was the clearest that God revealed himself. And yet, Moses did not see God. He asked to see God, but he only saw God's back. Moses only saw a glimpse of glory. That's what John means when he says no one has ever seen God. Not even Moses saw God. So if Moses didn't see God, you didn't see him either. That's what John is saying. But now, in Christ, God has revealed himself in a final way. Since Jesus Christ is himself God, he can reveal what God is truly and fully like. This is near to the heart of John's theology of Christ. The only Son who is lovingly known by the Father and near to the Father. The only Son of God, who is God, makes the Father known. It's as though Jesus interprets God for us. We love expository preaching at this church, so maybe this image will help. Jesus exposits the Father so that we can know Him. The Son explains, reveals, interprets the Father to us in a way that we could not know apart from Him. And Christ does this definitively. To know Jesus Christ is to know the triune God. And to know the triune God can only come through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why we believe that people who do not know Christ do not receive salvation. Christ is the only way to be saved because He's the only Son of God who makes the Father known. This is why John in chapter 14 can record Jesus saying to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To know Christ is to know God finally and savingly. And friends, that means that you and me, you you and me, we stand in a place of incredible privilege. You stand in a place that is better than Abraham and David and Isaiah and Amos and Micah. What Moses longed to see in glimpses and shadows You have seen in substance and in glory if you know Jesus Christ by faith. The end of the ages has come upon us. The end of the ages has come. And in Christ, we behold the very revelation of God in the flesh. There's no greater blessing than this. (laughs) There's no greater privilege than this. God can give us no greater gift, no greater grace, for He's given us Himself. In his son. Brothers and sisters, if you ever doubt the Father's love, which by the way, at times you will as a Christian, if you ever doubt the Father's love, look to Jesus Christ. There's no greater assurance of God's love than Christ. If you ever question whether or not God is good, look to Jesus Christ, who was made flesh for us and for our salvation if you struggle to believe that God is for you, look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the flesh and blood reminder to you that God is not holding out on you. He's not withholding from you any good thing. For He's given you Himself in His Son. To know Christ is to know God, and there is no greater assurance than this. Indeed, there's no better way to strengthen faith and overcome doubt and grow in grace than to behold Jesus Christ in His Word. I once heard a wise pastor say that you should read from the Gospels every day because in doing so, you would see Christ every day. That's really good counsel, friends. The new year is coming up, which is always a good time to focus on taking in God's Word. New Year's coming up. Always a good time to renew your focus on taking in the Bible in the new year. I'm going to preach on that tonight, by the way. You should come and listen. And so perhaps this is something you could add to your Christian walk in the new year. Read a chapter from the Gospels every day. Just one chapter from the Gospels. Start in Matthew. Go through John and then start over again. Read a chapter from the Gospels every day because in doing so... You would see Christ. And in seeing Christ. In seeing Christ. You would know God. His goodness. His love. His grace. His mercy. His faithfulness. If you're not a Christian this morning. This is what we would encourage you to do as well. The Bible is very clear. That apart from Christ. You are lost. And separated from God. Because of your sin. But the good news is that God is not waiting for you to take the first step towards him. The good news is that God has acted to draw near to sinners and reconcile them to himself. God sent his son to atone for sin, conquer death, and accomplish salvation for all who believe. If you're not a Christian today, if you're not a Christian, you can know God. But you can only know him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that that happens through repentance, which is to confess your sin and to turn away from it, and faith, which is to bank everything you have on Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian today, that's what we would pray that you would do, that you would repent of your sin and turn to Christ for the salvation of your souls. I love this passage. I'm, the whole Bible never fails to astound me, but there's no place in the Bible that is more astounding to me than John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's amazing. Glory, grace, revelation, it's nearly unthinkable. I hope it's wet your appetite. It's nearly unthinkable that God would come near to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus So may we know the joy of the gospel today and every day to the glory of God's name. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would please take now these few moments where we have reflected upon the Scriptures, that you would please take this time and bear fruit by your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray, God, that we would grow in knowing Christ. We pray that we would grow in conformity to his image. We pray that we would love the world less and love the things of God more as we meditate upon your word. Please give us grace now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.